You're listening to the City Light Sermon Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm also going to read from 1 Peter chapter 4, so if you tend to mark the scripture or look it up. You can look that up on your device if you're visiting with us like my new bearded fellow friend. The scriptures will be up on the screen behind me too, so you can follow that way. And if you're also new with us, sometimes when there's a quote, I'm actually going to read a lot of quotes from a guy named George Ladd this morning. And so I'm probably going to read about six things that he said about uh, history. So those things will be on the screen. And so if you see somebody sometimes lift their phone really high, Oftentimes people take pictures of the screen so they can remember and they can write it down later or maybe they use it for social media. I'm not sure what they do, but it's encouraging when I see some of those things. Uh, But I'm really excited about this last installment. Two weeks ago when uh, I preached that first message, for me and our artist community here, we just have been calling these messages the Garden City messages and we really see where we're going as a church as our contribution to the Garden City. We get that language because in the beginning of the scriptures, it says that God created a garden called Eden, and he intended for man and woman to be in that place and be fruitful and multiply with one another and everything around them. And if you read at the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 22, it describes a garden city where all the things that God had created are working in perfect harmony with one another, all the people and all the food and all the systems are working in a perfect government where Jesus is the king of that society and the king of that realm. And so we call that the Garden City. And we believe that the church is actually active participants and active partners in bringing the Garden City dream of God that he has established in our hearts and he's extending through his church. So we really do believe we're part of that. And so that's what we've been talking about for the last two weeks. And then this week specifically is the, I'm trying to really break it down to how. How are we actually going to do this? Of course, prayer. Of course, faith. Of course, uh, we're going to have to make proactive decisions and meet with architects and hire builders and do those things. And we've done a lot of those steps already, uh, but we're really blessed now to get down to some very specific things, which is where I'll end the message this morning. Today is the how. The first week, I didn't know it, but when we were talking and evaluating it afterwards is what we do every week as pastors and leaders. We just said, wow, that was the wow message. It was just a wow morning of, oh my goodness, I'm so inspired. And last week was, why are we doing this? Why are we making these things come to be? And ultimately, it was from Romans 15, that God has welcomed us into his family. And as he has welcomed us into his family, we are to welcome others into ours. And that word welcome in the Greek original language of the scripture, uh, the the letter to, to the church of Rome, actually means intercourse. It is to literally welcome someone into the most intimate state. So that is nothing strange or sexual in this context. We're pretty mature, although plenty of us have perverse past or maybe present. You kind of chuckle when I said intercourse is our welcome for one another. But it's ultimately in a marriage that you don't hold anything back. You're not hiding or holding anything. You say, what's mine is yours. So God actually made the first move and said, hey, what's mine is yours. We share in this. One of the stunning things about scripture, it tells us that God never changed. He intended us to be partners. It's one of the strongest words, actually, that we understand our relationship with God to be. God, yes, he is the creator. He put everything into motion, and he continues to be with his creation as individuals and throughout the whole earth. In fact, one of the things that we'll read that Paul actually quotes is Psalm 24. It's a psalm of a guy named David, and he says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's all his. So as a church... We really are wowed by that. We realize the why is because God intends 
to restore all things, reconcile all things back to himself. We just sang it. He makes all things new. God's not about making new things. The first things he made were excellent. And he's about renewing and remaking those original things, including me in my life as well. I do believe that God could have had a pecking order and assessed and judged everybody on earth and said some are better than others and some are worse than others. And the ones that are worse than others will be out and the ones who perform better can be in. And I'm so thankful that's not the economy of heaven. And it is the economy of earth now, which is one of the reasons why the church needs to continue to take her place and be proactive and not passive. Those days and those seasons and those generations are done. They're over. And we're at a time in history now where I do believe and we believe as a church that the church is to take her place as servants, but servant leaders who bring the kingdom of heaven to every household, every academic room, every marriage, every family, every neighborhood, every apartment, every place of the earth, specifically right here in the upstate, which is something that we're super excited about. You know, if you were to research what the world deems is the most spiritual places on earth, there's actually a list. In fact, it's pretty easy to find the top 10 most holy or spiritual places on earth. The top three, I'll give you the top three. Number three is actually a God-made one, and it's in, it's in Arizona. I'm actually going to be out west in a few weeks, and since this is actually number three, I'm going to go to this and go, okay, so this is one of the holiest places in the world, most spiritual. So number three, this is regarded as one of the most holy and spiritual places on planet earth. Number two is a man-made delegated place. This is Mecca in Saudi Arabia, where Muslim people will go to, for their pilgrimage if they can do that in their lifetime. And number one, I'm sure you could guess it, is Jerusalem, Israel. Number one holy place, spiritual place. And so it's interesting, that's not a Christian columnist. It's not even a religious columnist or perspective or survey to make these conclusions. That's just common man humanity saying there's something different about these places. So if there are spiritual places and holy places, it made me think, well, I wonder if the world would describe unholy, unspiritual, or maybe even evil places. I'm not going to give you the top three, but believe it or not, there's a top ten list for the most evil, dark places on earth. This is one of them right here. And you look at that and go, well, I'll live in that dark place. It's gorgeous. That's Transylvania. And so it was really interesting. I was looking at images. I'm a visual guy. I'm looking at like, how is that place evil? And then I looked at it and was like, oh, it's Transylvania for the history of all this legend that comes out of vampires and Dracula and all this spooky stuff. It's interesting to me that our world has categories like that. We have compartments. We have a holy compartment or a spiritual compartment or maybe just a good compartment. And we have a unspiritual or a secular or evil, or not good category. That's true inside the church, and it's true outside the church. That's true for believing people, and faithful people, and religious people, and it's true for unreligious people. It's true for people's marriages in this, in this room. It's, it's true for your friendships. It's true for your working relationships. We have compartments and categories of acceptable behavior and unacceptable behavior. That's pretty common. That's common knowledge. I'm not saying anything that's not new to you. But I do want to ask you this, and this is a personal question. What's the space or the distinction or the separation in your life? How much separation or distinction is there between the spiritual and the secular in the way you think and the way you live? Because if your answer, well, frankly, if you have an answer, you're at least matching with history and you're at least matching with culture and you're at least matching with Google or Bing or Yahoo 
because there's top 10 lists. And perhaps some of your favorite places on earth are some of those places. I remember a few years ago in a a three-month time, I had the incredible privilege to be in Jerusalem, in Israel, in Jerusalem, considered the most holy place on earth. I was in one of the top three greatest, most poverty-stricken slums in Kenya in, in two months apart, and then I was able to be in Los Angeles, one of the most affluent places on earth. And I remember when I was in Israel, I said, all right, Chris, you, you're, you're so in the moment and a feeler. Absorb all this and wait till you go to Africa, absorb all that, and then wait till you go to the Los Angeles and absorb all that, and then try to process going to the holiest, the poorest, and one of the richest, and just see how you feel. It was an amazing private journey that really did leave a mark on me. What a privilege it is to be able to see these things and taste these things. But what I want to say to you is this. I only went to sacred places. There was no place that I went in Africa that doesn't belong to God. And there was no place that I went to in Israel that doesn't belong to God. And there was no place I went in L.A. that doesn't belong to God either. Now, did I see all kinds of lifestyles in Los Angeles that maybe I had only read about or seen in TV? Yeah, and all those people belong to God. They're all his. I believe when when David wrote Psalm 24, he was not just saying something for that time, he was saying something for all time, that the earth is Yahweh's, the earth is the indescribable God's and every detail of everything in it. And though I don't think God is responsible for any of the evil, God has chosen to be responsible to take people and restore them to be people of light who penetrate the darkness, who pierce the darkness, who do not withdraw themselves and have categories, but flood the darkness with the light, metaphorically speaking. God has chosen not to separate himself or have a distinction of himself, though he is, quote, holy. In his holiness, God did not withdraw, but kept relating with. And you might go, wait a minute, I'm not sure that's true. Well, let's just start with the first three chapters of the Bible. God creates everything. Everything's made, and he creates a man and woman, and he looks back and says, everything is very good. It means it's exceedingly great. And then he moves into a time of Sabbath. Sabbath is not a nap because he was tired. Sabbath is a deeper enjoyment and a deeper uh, participation in everything that was made. God intended to create everything and then hand it off to people to be partners, to take an a garden called Eden, and so partner with him in his wisdom and in his guidance that their partnership would so multiply and so much good would be done that the participation between Yahweh and his creation would be such a perfect mirror reflection that it would eventually end up in an economic, socioeconomic government that we would call the Garden City or Shalom, where the peace of God and the intention of God is not measurably better than the evil, but the good doesn't just outweigh it. It leaves no margin or room for any corruption. That's the heart of God. Well, you know, there's a disobedient moment with Adam and Eve in the biblical story, and, and God deals with that, but he makes a covenant with them. And he, he says there's going to be natural consequences because of your, your rebellion, and it's going to help you see what it looks like when you decide to go your way rather than my way. And the, the first children that are born to Adam and Eve, they actually say, God has blessed us and given us children. Already, they're still in relationship with Yahweh. They still see the fruit of their labor. Their glorious, glorious work and command and challenge is still happening, and they give God the credit for it. And these two children end up fighting in such a way that one of them murders the other one, and God actually shows up and has a conversation with the murderer. 
and if you've been to this church for a while, you know we've talked about this. God didn't change, nor did his intention of partnership change. His partners just continue to be really fussy, grumpy, rebellious, selfish people. But God is the best financial person in history or numbers guy in history because he knew the price that would need to be paid to keep the partnership going for eternity. And it wasn't financial, it was relational equity. There's no one like our God. So when we sing a song like, there's no one like our God, one of the things that we mean by that is there's no one who could account for a partnership like a marriage where the spouse, which is the people of God, the church, just humanity. Listen, there was no planetary substance, nor were there people, humanity before all this. God creates it all, and his original intent is still his intent that all of us would live in harmony. And God budgeted knowing what he was getting into. So many marriages, we say we know what we're getting into. Pastors try to help you, and leaders try to help you with premarital counseling so that you don't have, or you have as few surprises as possible. But every marriage I've officiated over the last 20 years have had surprises that I haven't prepared them for. And then they have to make a choice when they find these things. What is going to convince me to stay with this partner? Yahweh has been faced with this decision since the beginning. And he has only consistently said, I'm all in. I've always been all in. And I will always be all in because you're my partner and I love you. That's really good news. Now, when I just shared all that, did you hear the separation of secular and sacred in there by any way, by any chance? Because if you did, I'll give you, a little bit of, I'll give you a little slice to hang on to it for a few more moments, and then we'll squish it. We'll move it out, biblically speaking. Yahweh God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we know that he is holy, not just moral perfection, but just the embodiment of goodness, just the embodiment of good. In every scenario, in every case, he has only acted rightly. Goodness, righteousness. Mercy and kindness. And we learn words like mercy and kindness and goodness because we see the quality of God's actions and we go, what can we call that? And a lot of biblical writers just looked and saw the works of God and went, mm, indescribable. How big is that? Immeasurable. How, can, we, can we calculate it? Incalculable. And so we have better adjectives like that that actually describe more. Because there is, the, the, the Psalms go on to tell us that his mercy is unending, his kindness is unending, and his grace is unending. Those are better descriptive measurements. Paul, listen, God has never known a category of, of secular or separate or distinct. I just want you to think about that. I'm not, I'm not, you know, by the time I'm done preaching, I hope to really biblically convince you of that. And for some of us who have a, uh, a Christian society and a, a dream for Christian government or, or Christian city or Christian mayor, those are, those are wonderful, wonderful ideas if that label really truly represents the wisdom of God on display wherever that person rules. It's a great idea. It's wonderful. But there'll never be a king who will serve longer than Jesus. There'll never be a ruler who rules above him. And we need to remember that in times like this in our country and, and all the time, frankly. These categories, though, I, I want to say, I'll just say it really clearly, the category of secular and sacred or spiritual or unspiritual was birthed during the intertestamental period in our history, which I'll talk about in a moment if you haven't been here and haven't heard those things. 
about 300 to 400 years before Jesus came to the earth as an incarnate son of God, there was a time of silence from God's people and God speaking to his people and through his people. And in that time, Greek philosophers rose and started to question things and think through things. And that is what birthed the separation of things secular and things spiritual. So when you read a passage like 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, and he is writing to a people group who hadn't heard from God for about 400 years. Then John, the baptizer, comes on the scene in a prophetic announcing the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes, lives perfect obedience with his father, dies on the cross, is buried, raised from the dead, commissions the disciples, 40 days later ascends to heaven, and launches this whole thing that still extends and is still going on now called his bride, the church. But that 400 years was broken by Jesus' activity. And then one of the next people to, to carry that on is this guy named Paul. And he speaks into this culture in Corinth and he says this, All things are lawful. What this means is you used to adhere and follow the law of the world or the day or even Judaism. And Paul says, hey, now in Christ, as Christ is not only the savior of your sins, but he's truly the leader and partner in your life, both now and forever, there's nothing that's unlawful for you anymore. Because Christ obeyed the perfect law of God, now we don't have to get up a staircase or get a degree or outweigh or outperform ourselves or somebody else to get to God. God literally, through Jesus Christ, took the ladder of, of pecking order and hierarchy and promotion and like a wooden ladder threw it into a chipper and we literally walk on the dust of that now and the ground is level at the cross. That's what Paul means when he says all things are lawful. He's saying in another word, uh, another way to say this, everything's permissible. I can do anything. But he says, not all of your things helpful, though. Just because I can do whatever I want, everything is not helpful. And listen, a lot of times we tend to look at the scriptures and read it as a personal statement. Everything's lawful for me, but not everything's helpful for me. But if you really read the biblical scripture, if you really read the scriptures and you don't personalize it, you'll see that every writer consistently writes about the helpfulness and the goodness and the building up is not about self, it's about others. It's about a life that would be turned inside out. When a life is healed and made new, it gives away. It moves from a scarcity, I need model, to I have relationship and partnership with the giver of all things, so there's no way I can outgive him, and he intends to give through me. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And then this is, this is the point I just made, but listen, verse 24. So let no one, let no one, uh, let no one seek his own good. Don't think about, return. you know, I've watched this happen. I even happen, I see it happen in our church. I, I see it happen in my own life that the goodness I experienced last week is tempting to try to duplicate this week. And so I'll learn new patterns. Oh, well, I read the Bible this long or I prayed this long or I, you know, it's dry January. I didn't drink a beer this month. So and that's why I was nicer to my wife. Well, that might be part of the reason why, depending on how much you're drinking and, and getting into those things. But we, we tend to try to figure things out. It's like some people are trying to figure out with investments in the world like Bitcoin, how long do I invest and what do I invest? And, and we play the game, but God's economy is not like that. And we literally turn the economy of this world and, and we try to play God like that. And we bargain with him. And Yahweh will have none of it. Not in a mad way, but in a sweet way saying, I'm not going to participate with that. I'll respect your decision. I'm, I'm with you. I'm not just stuck with you. I choose in with you. I'm here with you. I'm with you. And I want you to be wise. And I want you to learn. And I don't want harm for you. That's why I give you law. Do you realize that the law that the Jewish people understood, we're going to talk a lot about the Old Testament today, the law that the Jewish people understood that we call the Ten Commands, they called the Ten Words from God because they were words of life. 
You've heard me say it plenty of times. It would be like heading up, uh, up, up I-95 and you're getting off of that exit towards 26. Some of you guys know that when you're headed north. And if you do not slow down on that turn, you will flip. And the, the sign shows a, a semi-truck on, on its side like that. And it, I think you're going, I mean, for me, I'm going usually just above the speed limit and I'm going to have to turn at like 25 miles per hour. And I've tried plenty of times to go faster than that. My car rumbles and it gets really scary and everyone who's asleep in my car wakes up. That sign is not there to hurt me. That sign's there to help me. And the Jews, when God said, hey, don't, when you see your, uh, your neighbor's spouse and you think they're attractive, don't go try to have a relationship with them because that will lead to destruction for you and everyone else. The scriptures say, hey, don't commit adultery. Don't look at a woman in a lustful way. And we tend to try to go like, oh, I just got to make sure I don't do that. The law was saying, hey, at the heart of things, you're going to end up in a place that you're not wanting to be. And so God was actually breathing words of life, and that's how they understood them. Down in history, we just saw it as the way God was trying to restrict us. But that sign on I-26, I-95 interchange is not there to hurt me. It's to help me from being hurt. Paul goes on to say, we look out for the good, the good of our neighbor. So then he goes on to say, eat whatever is solid in us, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness therein. Just for a side note, there's, there's two messages that could be taught out of this passage. One of them is the things that we do or don't do and how we should consider other people in the room if they're young in their faith and they don't know better meaning they haven't learned um, as much as you have. Not just knowledge, but experience. That's not what I'm going to talk about right now, but it's a wonderful message of just because you're free to do whatever you want, uh, we forfeit, and I forfeit so many freedoms in my life for the better of the people around me who would cause them to struggle if I were to exercise those things. But you know what Paul's saying here? There were idolatrous, pagan, uh, non-Christianity, not Judeo, Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, religions and faiths, uh, there's one that when I was in Israel, they, I went to the place where the, the gate of Hades is, uh, where they would literally take their babies and children, they would just throw them into that opening in this, in this cave, and they believed that was the place of the dead in Hades for death, and they would just burn their children and throw them in there. That was one of the religions of the day. And at times, they would take meat, and they would burn meat unto their gods. And they would take that meat then, and some of the extra of that meat that they didn't burn, and they would sell it in a meat marketplace. And one of the things that Paul is going on to say to those people when he says, hey, when things are sold in the marketplace, what Paul goes on to say later, he goes, hey, you guys can eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter where the meat's from. And the people are like, oh, no, 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 but that meat was offered to, to false gods and there's no other God but Yahweh. And we understand that now, so we can't eat that meat. And he goes, guys, there aren't any other gods though. That's why it's little G, there aren't little, there aren't other gods. So, and Paul actually goes on to say like, I eat all that kind of meat. The only time I for, forbid or only time I forfeit eating that meat is when it's going to really cause somebody to go like, oh, you can't eat that meat. You're a pagan. You're an idolater if you eat that meat. And Paul would look at that person and go, okay, for this moment, I'm not going to go ahead and eat that meat for the sake of your conscience because you couldn't handle me doing that. But can we talk about who God is? Can we talk about that their God never responds to the things they're doing? Let me tell you about Elijah and the day that he fought with all the soothsayers and the little G gods and all of the spiritual people of his day. There were hundreds of them. Can I tell you about the day that they, were, they had a competition to see whose God would respond and hundreds of them eventually were cutting themselves open and pouring their blood all over the sacrifice, waiting for their God to respond with fire? Can, can we talk about how they were moaning and, and crying, trying to get God's attention, their God's attention, and he never came 
Can I tell you about how kind of pompous and silly Elijah was? And he actually said, hey, keep going. Keep doing this, guys. Literally killing themselves to get God's attention, doing everything they could inwardly and outwardly to get God's attention. And he actually says to them, hey, keep going, because possibly your God is actually in a cave somewhere relieving himself. Going number two somewhere. I mean, that's in the Bible. Elijah's like, I think your God might be going number two, but he might be done, so keep cutting yourself. And, and Paul would have told this story to somebody who's like, we can't eat that stuff. And he would have went on to say, do you know what Elijah did? Elijah actually decided to soak that whole sacrifice with water and just literally make it unlightable. And as soon as he stepped back, the fire came down and lit the sacrifice. God immediately responded and he destroyed all of those people who were bowing down to a, a false God. He, the, the literal sacrifice caught them all up. Paul knew this. He was able to instruct people who didn't know this. And this, this is one of the statements that Paul would have made to say like, hey, you call things secular or sacred, but there's not secular meat. It's just meat. Just because they say it was packaged and offered up to the, the cow god of fertility doesn't mean that suddenly you're receiving that cow god's curse. Now listen, there is spiritual heavenly things and angels and there are spiritual demons. So I'm not by any means saying those things do not exist. I'm not telling you to be unwise, not telling you to do those things. I'm trying to make an academic scholarly point that is true of the spiritual things of God. So please, please, please try to stick with me. The reason Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians is because the people of that day had inherited a culture in the last 400 years of their lives during the intertestamental period. Can you put up the intertestamental period um, numbers? So the Old Testament that you read in the front part of your Bible all the way until you get to the book of Matthew. Between Malachi, prophet Malachi, and Matthew is about 400 years. In history and scholarship, that's known as the intertestamental years because it's in between the two testaments of the Bible. And it was a years of silence. It's said in history that God did not speak through people like he did with the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Malachi and Hosea, all these people. God was silent. What's stunning to me is I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I thought, I thought to myself, how did the whole secular and sacred thing happen? Because when I read through the Old Testament, I certainly see things that are atrocious and sinful, but I don't see God having trouble navigating through some cities that are secular, even though there's some that are called Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're, and they're rich with sinfulness. But I don't see God having these categories. Well, as I continue to think about it, I thought about the intertestamental period, and as I studied, I realized that the idea of a category of some things being secular and some things being spiritual came from Greek philosophy. And as I began to study, I was like, oh, well, it came from Socrates. And, and Socrates had a student, and his name was Plato. And Plato had a student whose name was Aristotle. And Aristotle had a student whose name was Alexander the Great. And I, and I thought about that, and I was like, oh, my goodness. I wonder what years they, they lived and I went ahead and looked at what years they live. And if you look at the top two years, the, that length of time and the top two numbers, look at these uh, statue busts of these three figures, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And what you see here is you see the years that these people influence society and the whole world and today. I've taken philosophy in my undergraduate work, and some people are studying philosophy. This is, this is still who philosophy is built on. There's modern day philosophers, but I mean, ultimately everything originates from these guys who were pioneers in this way. These individuals, listen, the people of God were not interacting with God or hearing from God. They abdicated their place with God. They forfeited and they forsook the relationship with their partner. And for 400 years, their partner Yahweh was silent. 
And in the absence of Yahweh speaking, rose the philosophers of the day to say, we will interpret what is true. And what we say is true then becomes sacred rather than what God says is sacred is what is true. One of my favorite paintings in history is called The School of Athens. And this is a painting, I believe Raphael did it. And this is a painting of the greatest philosophers in history. It almost looks like the Last Supper in some ways. Now, I don't expect you to know who's here, but look, I'm gonna, we're going to put up labels from some of the philosophers. Look who's right at the center of everything. Right at the center is this thinking that was developed, this philosophy that was developed, that there is a, a sacred world and a secular world. And in this life, one matters and one doesn't. And the conclusion was the physical, the body, all this outward stuff means nothing and is going to waste away and we shouldn't care about it. All that matters is the spiritual. My friend, if that's the case, why would God ever choose to be incarnate in the flesh? If they had it right, why would Jesus break the silence of his silence to break up their teaching? So how do we need as a people to see the planet then? Well, Colossians 3.17 helps us understand what our work looks like on earth. Whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you say and whatever you do, however you spend your time, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. That's not just saying like, thank you God and thank you Father. It's literally living a life of thankfulness in all we do. Living a life of thankfulness just looks like acknowledging him in all that we do. It's partnership. A thankful life unto God is a life that identifies and lives into the partnership with him. And it's beautiful. As you continue to walk with God, it, there's, there's, a, there's a partnering that is a togetherness that is, it's almost indescribable when you experience that partnership with Yahweh when he leans into you as well. John Mark Comer, he's, a, he's written a few books and he's a he pastor out west and northwest. He describes this, uh, this dichotomy well. And dichotomy would be a good word for this, a dichotomy of there's a spiritual part of earth and a spiritual part of people and there's a physical part of people and a physical part of earth and they don't commingle and they don't, they're not both worth uh, the, the good. And I need to mention, by the way, there's so much scholarship stuff I'd like to talk to you about, but do you know that the first competing um, corruption for the church of Jesus Christ's church is a, a, a movement called Gnosticism? You know what Gnosticism was? And Paul writes about this to most all of the churches in the New Testament. Gnosticism was a teaching. It was a form of Christianity that said this, what you do with your body doesn't matter at all. It's, it's just going to be filth and die away. Only thing that matters is what you do on the inside. So the church of Corinth was actually taking this to heart at such a level that they were living more licentiously and rebelliously and horrendously than non-believing, non-spiritual, non-faith people. It's said in history that the church of Corinth outsend every other culture. <laughs> the church, because Gnosticism, which by the way, Gnosticism was born about 300 years after the years of silence when the Greek philosophers brought in their agenda and their interpretation, they said, we think that this is true. There's the physical and there's the spiritual and the physical, who cares? And we believe that Yahweh said they've always mattered. 
John Mark Comer says, look up the word spiritual in Genesis to Malachi. That's the whole Old Testament. And that's the Bible that Jesus used, by the way. He's just making a point. And the reality is that word isn't in there. Because there weren't categories. There wasn't compartmentalization like that. Why? Because in Hebrew, in a Hebrew worldview, all life was spiritual. This is George Ladd. I'm going to read one thing by him and then four more as we keep going. Hebrew thought, this is, a, this is an Old Testament scholar, Hebrew thought is the belief that God is the creator. We believe that. That the world is God's creation. We believe that. And is therefore in itself good. We believe that what God created was good and he has been about a partnership with humanity to re-goodify, to remake, to make all things new, to bring it back to its original state. The Greek idea, the Greek Stoics and the Greek philosophers' idea was that the material world is the sphere of evil and a burden or a hindrance to the soul and is alien in the Old Testament. Literally, in that, I mean, you should have seen me in my office seat this morning. I thought about, I wonder if these Greek philosophers found their rise during the 400 years where man was not living out their partnership with Yahweh. I was shocked and encouraged. (laughs) Shocked because I'm like, oh my goodness, that's what happens when the people of God pull away. That's what happens when the people of God compartmentalize their faith. That's what happens when there's a distinction of what I do at work and what I do at home and what I do on Sunday and what I do Sunday night. When there's a distinction, I literally bring the truth and the sacred things that are true for eternity, and I take them and prize them by myself. And then because I want to be cool or accepted or I don't want to ruffle feathers or be controversial, I don't bring those things into the rest of society, and I call that society secular or, quote, the world, when the world was actually the partnership of me and God. And I will say is, uh, you don't have to be much of a scholar to realize that the church did the exact same thing over the last 70 years through really poor interpretation of scripture that the earth is just going to hell in a handbasket and all the things on it are just going down and the people of God just need to hunker down and get together and read our books and do our Bible studies and memorize more songs and God will come back and get us. Good luck finding that anywhere on any page of here. Because Jesus in his last words, he said, all right, guys, you got it? Now go into the world. I'm the light of the world. The light of the world is in you. We're a sent people. I know that we often describe ourselves as, in our culture as a church and people ask what your address is and how many people belong there. The first hundred years of the church, it was known as a mobile entity. They were the people on the move. They were the people who were going. And now we're people who go to church. When we are the church. The Hebrews had no concept of if even something like nature, as a separate compartment. <laughs> to them, the world was the scene of God's constant activity. Isn't that a beautiful line? It's a great line. Thunder was the voice of God. Pestilence, things that were meant to get their attention and rebuke them and correct them was the heavy hand of the Lord. And human life is the breath of God and breathe in man's face. So how much distinction and separation do you think Jesus had in his life? in the way he thought and the way he lived. Think about that. Is it just because Jesus was holy that everywhere he went became holy? You could make an argument that his holiness potentially could have dominated a room, his worldview, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't, I mean, as far as personalities go, he wasn't this big extrovert. In fact, he was able to 
uh, perform and speak and do things in the masses of people, but when he chose things, he usually intended to just grab a few people and have meaningful conversation or meaningful rest with one another. But Jesus makes it very, very clear that there, there is only the earth is the Lord's and everything there in it. Jesus didn't have categories. And I don't want to make an argument just because Jesus was there, it was holy. However, when you go to places that people call bubble or secular, when you walk in the room, you literally bring heaven to that place. But that place already belongs to the Lord of the heavens. You can make an argument that everybody on earth belongs to Yahweh. Did you just say universalism? No, I just said that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, there are pagans. Well, then go love them if you think they're pagans. Well, I got to judge them. Well, he told you that exact thing to not do. But I know what they're doing wrong. And he said you wouldn't. (laughs) So you literally know better than the actual instructions given to you from the scriptures. So if you want to go that way, you are literally putting yourself above the biblical instruction, which was meant to help you, not hurt you. It's a 25-mile-per-hour sign when you're going 80. Don't judge. You lack insight. You lack vision. You lack understanding. If there's one thing that church I would love to see us do as a church in 2018 is be a better people of understanding, that we would love others the way that Peter tells husbands to love their wives, Peter doesn't write to, uh, to married couples and say, hey, husbands, get your wives to understand, which isn't a bad thing to say. He says, husbands, understand your wives. It's very different for me to go home today and say, hey, Jerusha, I've got some things you need to understand versus me going home and saying, hey, babe, I really want to, I should better want to understand you. Very different. And oftentimes the church leads the way of saying, we need to go teach people things. You know, but Jesus was somehow able to meet people right in their, like the, their deepest weakness and hurt or pride, meet them right at that place. And those people felt seen and understood by him. They would ask him questions and then he would help them understand. And they understood themselves. I believe he's doing the same things today. So what people will build this property? Again, if you're visiting with us, we, are, uh, we own 13 acres on the Swamp Rabbit Trail and our, our property is called the Swamp Rabbit Crossing. And Last week, I did an update of the floor plan for our church and how we'll be able to be uncompromising in the way that we equip one another and, and ultimately how we're able to extend God's kingdom, not only as people individuals, but as a corporate church, which we're really, really excited about. But what kind of people will build the property? How, how are we going to get from here to there? What kind of people do we need to be? Well, I was, I was talking with Timothy, our worship leader, who's on his one-year anniversary with his wife and his baby, which is super exciting. We're glad they're away. We're thankful for Jasper and the team leading in his absence. Um, I was talking with Jasper and then our Samurai Sunday, I mean, um, Timothy and Samurai Sunday, and uh, I said, hey guys, do you think that some people um, will come to the Swamp Rabbit Crossing when we have like that area called the Myriad, which will host like open mic nights, or uh, it'll host Rhythm and Rhymes, which is an area for spoken word and rap and poetry to a live jazz band. Do you think people in our congregation will come there and they want to go there because they know that people they were unbelieving will be in that place and they're going to want to go there so they can share the gospel? And they're like, oh, I bet they will. And I go, oh, all right, yeah. And I thought, do you think those people go to Coffee Underground now when they do open mic night every week and go share the gospel there? And Timothy went, whoa, you got to share that on Sunday. (laughs) And I went, because if you're not that kind of person now, please don't start being that person when you get there. 
if we're going to be people who build that property, be the person you envision yourself being then. Be that person now. I mean, this is, if you've been in churches, when people go, oh, I'm called to the nations, I'm going to be a missionary, and you go, awesome, where have you given your life away this year? Like, no, no, I'm, I'm called to China, not other people. And you go like, oh, what are you going to do over there? Like, I'm going to do everything, I'm going to sweep floors, I'm going to, I'll do whatever it takes. Like, have you slept, swept any floors, like volunteer? No, 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 I'm called to China. <laughs> I'm like, man, China doesn't want you, I promise. I promise, because you, you have not proven the ability to, to be the person they need. You have some pipe dream of what it's going to look like. If you're not living out your faith on mission right now, I, I do not want to be part of a church that builds a property that, I want to help you live out your faith, but you, we need to do that today and now. So there's just three little things. I just made the first one. We need to be the person now that we envision us being then. The second one might be news to you guys. The Swamp Rabbit, SRC, Swamp Rabbit Crossing. The Swamp Private Crossing spaces won't be more sacred or spiritual than other spaces in the city. Because I believe all the spaces in the city are Yahweh's. I've never been to a space where Yahweh wasn't. When I spoke in Dominican Republic during their carnival, it's 350,000 people, uh, murder and pregnancies and, um, and deaths, drug overdoses, it's their highest during their carnival. And I went there and did um, music and spoke. And I expected to go into one of the darkest realms that I had ever been in uh, to date at that point. And by this point, I had well developed uh, an ability to see into the supernatural and see angels and see demons. So I just figured like if I'm preaching in front of or speaking or doing music in front of 3,000, I'd see 3,000 humans and 3,000 demons. And I kid you not, uh, when I was there, I saw zero demons, <laughs> none. That place wasn't darker. People just said it is. Those people are just as lost as I was without Jesus. Jesus loves them just as much as he loves me. And I had an amazing opportunity to let them know that. I was ready to be a demon hunter and knock those things out of the country, but there just weren't any there. I couldn't believe it. I remember being on stage. I think I, think I turned around and told our keyboards, like, man, I don't see any demonic activity here. This is supposed to be the darkest place in the world. What's going on? Well, the light of God was lighting the place up, and there wasn't demonic activity that could do anything about it. It doesn't mean that that place isn't set apart for the glory of God, it is. But so is a garden that people can eat out of. Those strawberries that we prayed over will probably taste as good as the strawberries that we didn't pray over. I'm, I, know I'm, I know I'm stepping on toes a little bit. And listen, man, I'm all kinds of in the tank of spirituality and, and seeing angels and seeing demons and seeing those, their place. But that stuff, that, you guys do know that your identity and your, who you are is above angels and demons, right? We get so fascinated and we prop them up as something greater than ours. The demons are messengers and workers from the devil and angels are messengers or workers from, from, from God and you are made and now remade in Christ Jesus as the image bearer of God. We can't, you know, that's an upside down confusion that would be good to sober up from. All things are Yahweh's. Every person I've ever met is someone that God loves. Have you ever met somebody that God doesn't love? Anybody? You might go, oh, this person's far from God. You, I just, I want to lovingly say we need to learn to measure with heaven's ruler sticks. I've never met somebody that God doesn't love, ever. And if you conclude that God doesn't love that person, that's terrifying. Because that can come right back to you, depending on what makes you think that God doesn't love that person. 
What about Calvinism and all that stuff? Find a debate about it. But the way you might think about predestination or Calvinism, if it causes you to sit on your hands and say, God will figure it out, you have not had any clue about figuring out what God's about. I just say that in a kind way. I only say that to you studied persons. Number three, your life cannot compartmentalize the spiritual versus secular. What kind of people is it going to take? You notice I didn't say like wealthy people who are ready to give and people who are construction workers and pull up their boots and, and maintainers and artists. It's the spiritual people who realize that all of it belongs to Yahweh and all of it will reflect. And we don't need to overcompensate, be passive. We have just a beautiful proactivity like we're in a river that God's moving through. What does it look like? It's 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. The verses before this are stunning as well. As each one of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That's the kind of people. Who does that go to? Not just the church. Use your gifts outside of these walls. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Varied means polka-dotted, spotted. Kelton, wherever you are. I mean, Remember we were talking about that this week? God spotted polka-dotted grace, meaning there's going to be things that happen in life that are so random and unpredictable, and God has exactly shape and size things to match it with grace. Whoever speaks, then speak is the one who's speaking in partnership with God. Whoever serves, then serve is one who is being strength with the partnership of God. <laughs> in order that in everything God may be glorified, that God may be seen, that God may be manifest, that God may, the big deal that God is may be seen is what that means to be glorified. Sometimes we think about glorified, like, I hope God's glorified. Like, well, is, was his kindness on display? Was his beauty on display? Were people finding hope? Were people finding love? Were people finding acceptance? Because when the people who were, quote, outside that didn't love Jesus, when Jesus went to those broken people, they gave up everything to follow him. And it was the people who thought they had things figured out and how government should run and family should run and church should run and spirituality should run and how their spouse should do and kids should do, that Jesus came around and said, you guys are a brood of vipers. You guys are whitewashed tombs. You go putting heavy burdens on all these people. What's wrong with you? And listen, I'm not saying that to any of you. You can certainly ask that question. That's one of the things I struggle with. I, I mean, if there's a sin that I could label for the majority of my life that's come up from time to time, it's self-righteousness. That means the way I think and the way I see things is the most right way, so I'll help people know it. That's me being a judge and being self-righteous. Uh, there's no justification for that. I'm not asking for like license to be patient with me on that at all. I'm just telling you that's something I struggle with and it's disgusting. Let each of us glorify Christ because to him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. George Ladd, two more statements from him. The Greek view was that God can be known by, listen, I mean, this is amazing. This is what happens somehow Authors and speakers picked this up about 70 years ago, and then it really took way about 20 years ago. But listen to this. The Greek view is that God can be known only by the flight of the soul, the leaving of the, the, the soul of the body from the world and history. But the Hebrew, Jewish, the Old Testament view is that God can be known because he invades history to meet men in historical experience. That's amazing. Jesus literally left heaven to bring it to earth. He didn't leave heaven to go say, hey, I'm gonna give you something so you can get to heaven later. He says, I'm going to set up heaven on earth as it was in heaven. It's going to have a happy meeting. It's gonna merge together and you will be the partners that bring it to fruition. What a beautiful wake up with your alarm says, hey, heaven's meeting earth today. That's amazing. Man is God's creature. Creation is the realm of God's constant activity. I've never woken up any day in my life and not seen the activity of God. 
That's something that we should all ask ourselves because a lot of us have some really poopy days. We're like, this is the worst day I've ever had. And, And we sometimes with our words and our actions act as though God is not interested or involved. And I get it. Listen, I understand. I understand my mom has breast cancer right now and she has several other things going on, and, and sometimes I text her, and we, we interact with one another, and she doesn't sound like she has any hope. And I understand. I've never had breast cancer, but I've, I've loved many people through that, and, and I've lost some to death with that. I, I get it. I understand. It's so difficult. But every time she and I talk, I'm not just trying to say, I got to make sure we get an encouragement. I just invite her to think about a greater context. And she now, every time goes, honey, I'm just trying to live one day at a time. And it's hard for me to see hope. It's hard for me to see getting through this. But I, I'm, I'm trusting God, but I'm being real in the circumstance. I said, that's awesome, mom. That's awesome. It's inspiring for me to watch you battle with that. Creation is in the realm of God's constant activity and God makes himself known and speaks to men in the ebb and the flow of history. He's involved in all of it. It's like getting to the Red Sea and there's about probably 1.5, 1.6 million people plus animals and all of their stuff at the Red Sea and um, Israel had been in slavery for 400 years and then all of the strongest fighting people were coming to kill them and, and at that moment, everyone's like, we're dead! We never should have left. We should have just stayed as slaves. At least we wouldn't be hot out here and trying to figure out where we're going to get a meal. I mean, just every single negative possibility was being thrown at the leader. And the leader privately is just like, okay, uh, we're dead. Thanks, God. <laughs> you let us out. We had a good couple days, and now we're here at the Red Sea, and we literally can't go left or right. We're dead. And, and Yahweh just says to Moses, just lift your staff as a symbol. And God, the biblical story says that God blows a wind and literally separates the sea, and they walk through dry land. There is a salvation moment in everything. We really do have an option, salvation or destruction. Maybe we can just get to every situation and go, I can't wait to see what God does. So what kind of people are we going to be to build the property? Well, I, I want to point to just some, a few artists in our house, and there's just going to be a few images on the screen. Because I'm seeing people do what I'm talking about, what, what the scriptures are calling us to, to, to live out our faith for the glory of God right where we are in everything we do. So that we don't necessarily have Christian artists or Christian business, businessmen, but we have people of heaven, people of the future really invading all of the spheres of life and, and, and not having compartments for what they do. So we're trying to do the things to the greatest ability. So I've, I'm watching people do this. This is Kelton Cox, and he created this Garden City imagery for this series, and it's also a contribution to the Swamp Rabbit Crossing and things we'll do. He, painted, he put this together when we've been going through our Believe series through the book of John. These symbols and these storylines came out in our conversation, and he created this on his own one afternoon. This is quite obvious. I think this is, I haven't talked to him about the inspiration behind it, but it looks a lot like um, the, the group of people that said, may the Lamb of God receive the reward of his suffering, and then they went off and sold themselves as slaves to reach the slaves. This is a furniture maker in our house. This is James Mills, and he's making furniture, and uh, I, I will make public now, Mignon, I did a great update last week. I don't know if you were here, but I'll do another update for you right now in, the, in this moment. But the furniture that will be in the Swamp Rabbit Crossing, our goal is to have all local furniture designers use the whole facility as the showroom. So all of your furniture and all of your things that you make can be on display as long as they meet a quality specification. But those things will be in there. Those things that people will be sitting on and eating on, and they can buy those things. So it's a showroom for you, but it's to demonstrate the glory of God and the beauty of God. And so this is uh, Brandon Seabrook Nelson's artwork, which is some of my favorite artwork that's being created on earth right now. It has a beautiful 
urban vibe. Some of you guys don't know, I, I, love, I love hip-hop and I love rap. And so this, I feel like so much of the urban culture and African-American culture is represented in his artwork. It's just absolutely stunning to me. And this is uh, our, our photojournalist, John Staganga. This is up in, it was North Dakota, right, with the pipeline and all the protests that went. John, as a photojournalist, just felt like he needed to go. And so I'm not even sure how he funded it, but he went up. I wish you could see some of these images. It's some of the, some of the best photography I've, I've seen in my life are the things that he's capturing. This is from the women's march that happened right here in our city. I, all I'm showing you guys is what does it look like to be the people of God? Well, don't, don't wait to create. Don't wait to give. Don't wait to serve until we get to the property. That's, that's a crazy notion. Let's be faithful right where we are with the things we have. I mean, we are so excited to display all kinds of art there, but our artists are creating art now. And you faithful servants, let's be faithful servants now. You who are ready to give, let's give now. You who can give financially now, let's do this. Let's, let's, let's give of our lives in that way. Let's live out our faith right where we are. So how will the people build the property? It's, this is really specific. This is the thing that Oliver challenged me. He's like, Chris, you've got to give us the how. And this is my answer to Kim Face when we announced the property and took the vote. And she's like, how much and when? I'm like, I don't know. Well, now we have some ideas. Here are the three things it's going to take for us as a church. And I say this unashamedly because there's nothing else I'm going to give my life to right now that is more important than moving this church into this property. Besides, obviously, loving God and my family, but the expression of my faith looks like this. Number one, uh, the Bible calls 10% a tithe. It literally means a 10% off the top of the things that God's given to you so that you'd give 10% consistently. And I want to ask you as a church, if you are a giver or a member here, that you would be a person who says, yes, I am giving 10% on a consistent basis to this church. We need to do that. Even if you're not a member, I'm, I, just, I have different expectations for those who are givers and builders in the house. I want all of you to join the church if you're ready for that. But we would love by March the 1st that we are in. The reason I say that date uh, is because we need to set our operating budget and we need to make sure that we have our basis covered to operate as a church for the next year before we, so that we can build the building. We need to make sure we can afford it is what I'm saying. Number two, that you would gather your free will offering. A free will offering simply means this. In the Bible, when God prescribed to the people to build things, or people went to God and said, can we build it? He said yes in both situations. In the way it was funded, he said, go tell the people who are the givers. Go tell the people who are my people. Go say, bring the riches of your storehouse. Bring your wealth. Bring your gifts to the house of God. Bring it to the leadership that you might be able to fund it. In every case in the scriptures, when they did this, more than enough came in and the leadership had to say, stop bringing gifts. <laughs> of course we're going to be that church. Yeah. I'm not saying, I hope we are. Of course we are. Yeah. Why wouldn't we be that way? It's going to be awesome. $150,000 gets all the designs done, all the mechanical, electrical, plumbing designs, all the structural engineering, all the civil engineering, and it pulls the permits so that everything is done, plus we'll have the final budget of what everything costs. $150,000 will do that. The only thing keeping us from doing that right now is the money. I want to be, this is somewhat of an announcement, I want to see if we can do this entire property in cash with no debt. I don't know if we can, but I really want us to do the best we can to do that. To do that, our first hurdle, our first test, as the elders look at this, they say, hey, this is going to be a big test for our church. If we can consistently give on a monthly so that we can operate and, and pay the salaries and continue to extend the kingdom and give above. So this is a lump sum gift to try to hit $150,000 in cash so we can pay everybody in full so that when we're about to construct, we don't have a single thing that we owe. 
And I'm hopeful that we can celebrate all that would be in before Easter. And on Easter, we'll celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and we'll celebrate the beginning of the resurrection of the property. Number three, consider what above and beyond amount you will give consistently starting May 1st. That looks like what some churches would call a capital campaign. We're not really gonna do a capital campaign, I hope. The goal is that we would all communicate what we can give on a consistent, which is that 10%, and say, hey, I'm gonna give above and beyond. Listen, I, I put that date in May for my own family because we haven't decided what we're going to give and how much we can give and how much things we can sacrifice so we can give it to this house. But I'm asking you to pray and also be ready and write those dates down. I'll, I'll put them online so you guys can try to follow those. And by the way, if you know all that stuff now, start doing it now. That would be a huge encouragement to us if we would just get going with these things. Two last George Ladd comments and then one comment by me. The Old Testament never views the earth as an alien place nor as an indifferent theater on which man lives out his temporal life while seeking a heaven destiny. That's what the Greek philosophers taught, and that's what a really perverted narrative of interpretation of scripture was very pervasive. It's, it's totally on its way out now, but those books sold millions and millions and millions and struck a really poor application in the world. Man and the world together belong to the order of creation. And in the real sense of the word, the world participates in man's fate. We're dancing partners, guys. It's amazing. Last thought by old Georgie here. The Old Testament never pictures ultimate redemption as a flight from the world or escape from earthly bodily existence. Salvation does not consist of freeing the soul from its engagement in the material world. On the contrary, and remember, Jesus rose bodily. On the contrary, ultimate redemption will involve the redemption of the whole man and the whole world to which man belongs. Because that's the home of God. That's so, that's so exciting to me. Last statement. Whole people like you and me find our wholeness in Jesus Christ and him alone. Whole people fill the whole world with indescribable glory when they view the world as sacred and surrender everything in partnership with God for the glory of God. Let's just take a moment of silence just to, just to be still with this teaching. God is one of the shepherds of this house, one of the leaders of this house. I want to acknowledge that you are truly the head of this church and you are the head of my life. I recognize that you have all things and I want to partner with you in everything. And as a church, this community of people, we want to partner with one another with you. We love the plans that you have for us. We love the eyes that you've given us that see what couldn't be seen and now can be. The ears that couldn't hear but now can. The minds that couldn't know but now know. In a proactive way, we partner with you and we go with you. We know that we are your sent ones. We trust you 
And in a real way, God, we're not waiting for you to move. We've heard from you. And as for us in our house, we will serve with you, Yahweh God. Holy Spirit, thank you for being in each of these believing people. And thank you for building them up through this teaching and bringing about pure life with you that's reflective of your goodness and brings glory to your name. And we give this time of worship and seal it up in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.